We are now faced with the fact that tomorrow is today. We are confronted with the fierce urgency of now. In this unfolding conundrum of life and history, there is such a thing as being too late. This is no time for apathy or complacency. This is a time for vigorous and positive action. That was a quote from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. from a speech he gave on April 4, 1967, exactly one year to the day that he was assassinated. Today is January 31, 2017, and the United States have seen more protests in the last 10 days than at any time in our history since the Vietnam era. Hi, I'm Michelle Carlo, and this show is Fish Out of Agua. This week in Fish Out of Agua, we go from December 1975 to the early spring of 1976. New York City had survived Vietnam, Watergate, hippies, yippies, black power, gay power, and women's lib, but sometimes it seemed the city would not survive its great racial and economic divides. There was no hiding from it in the 1970s. If you went to Times Square, you were surrounded by the sex trade. If you went to Union Square or Tompkins Square, you were surrounded by junkies. If you went to the South Bronx, Harlem, Spanish Harlem, or Central Brooklyn, you were surrounded by a landscape that sometimes more resembled Europe after World War II than anything in a modern city. If you went to Astoria, Bensonhurst, Maspeth, or Williamsburg, you were surrounded by mostly ethnic white working-class ghettos, much like the neighborhood where I grew up. Of course, there were always distractions. For me, it was my first crush. And even though it didn't work out, as many first crushes don't, I remember singing this song to myself in my time of sorrow to comfort me, as Aretha Franklin so hauntingly conveyed in this mid-1970s tune.
And now, Chapter 23 of Fish Out of Agua The Gift It was just a regular Tuesday, a couple of days before Christmas. And as usual, right after school, I went straight to my room and pretended to do my homework while making mixtapes off 95.5 WPLJ, past the J, the cool rock station. The station I could somehow only get if I put my cassette radio recorder out on a fire escape and aimed the antenna covered with tinfoil at the Whitestone Bridge, which of course connected to Queens, the total opposite direction from Manhattan. It had begun to snow, and in between trying to sneak a cigarette and brushing the snowflakes off the radio, I didn't hear my mother come in and tell me that I had to go to the store now. And I went, oh man, the last thing I wanted to do was truck all the way to Westchester Square. And the last thing I wanted to get was what she needed. Kotex. The big box of Kotex. The big purple box with the bright yellow letters that said, super. The box that never fit into any size bag so that the top always stuck out of it and everyone who looked at you knew you were the one that must be bleeding a lot. I stomped through the streets and into the drugstore where the four-eyed, pimple-encrusted cashier drooled as he took my money. And I swore if I ever had a daughter, I would never, ever make her buy me my menstrual supplies. And as I tried to stuff the paper bag underneath my jacket, I heard someone call, Hey, Shell! And then two boys whizzed by me, one grabbing that bag from my hands as they both ran down the block. It was Dennis and Louie of the Overing Boys. That meant that they hung out at the PS600 schoolyard, smoked weed, and knew that all the girls on the block wanted to make out with them. Except me. Well, not really. I actually had a raging crush on Dennis, my first, along with 30 other girls in the neighborhood, but because I knew it would never be reciprocated, I wasn't blonde, blue-eyed, or big-bosomed, I hated him in the way only another teenager could understand. Dennis and Louie had stopped running and were now taunting me with the Saluji game, throwing the bag back and forth between them like a football, and I was so terrified that one of them would realize what was in the bag or if the box would fall out of the bag, my shame made me run faster than they could. Hey, what the fuck? I yelled, and I tackled Dennis, only to see the big purple box with the bright yellow letters spring from his hands onto Westchester Avenue where it was immediately run over by a number four bus. I pushed Dennis, and then Louie, not caring if they were going to beat me up. Hey, Shell, it's only a box of cookies. You can get another one, Louie said. Cookies? Then Dennis grabbed my hands and looked at me. And I knew that he knew what was in that box, but he didn't tell. Come on, Shell, we'll walk you home. The snow was really coming down now. It looked like it was almost a foot deep, all in the half hour since I had left home. The three of us walked past all the houses done up for the holidays, homes of working people with small budgets and big imaginations. And somewhere between the dancing Rudolphs, talking baby Jesuses, and competing soundtracks of Andy Williams versus Donna Summer's Christmas album, 
We started sticking out our tongues to catch the snowflakes before they fell on each other's sleeves. And then we ran, scooping snow off the hoods of cars and flinging it at each other. Louis skidded into a parked car, and Dennis and I both jumped on him and bounced up and down. <laughs> no car alarms back then to stop us. And then we all fell into a drift, and every time one of us got up, the other would push that person down until we were all covered in snow. And we got up and ran again, slipping and sliding and laughing down Trapman Avenue until we fell, got up, and fell again, rolling like a giant teenage snowball. And at the end of the block, a street lamp broke our descent, and somehow the three of us ended up standing up and holding hands. A car backfired. The spell was broken, and we dropped our hands at the same instant. And we stood there twinkling under the street lamp, frosted with snow, and glowing red in the December twilight, not knowing what had happened or what to do next. And finally, Dennis asked me if I was home. I nodded yes, and then both Dennis and Louis stood on either side of me. They each kissed me on my wet, frostbitten lips and ran back up the block. See ya, Shell! Merry Christmas! <laughs> I floated upstairs, and I told my mother a bus ran over her box. And she made me pay her back out of my own money and sent my father out to get her supplies once he got home from work. And he wasn't happy about it either. Soon after Christmas... Dennis and Louis were murdered. They and another friend, Billy Gizmo, were walking out of the McDonald's on Silver Street when a car drove by and threw a beer can at them. Louis picked it up, threw it back, and called them all douchebags. And then the car drove around the block, and the boys inside shot them down as they were crossing the street. Billy being half a foot shorter than Dennis and Louis, somehow saw the gun out of the corner of his eye and threw himself to the pavement a split second before the shots ran out. He didn't even have time to yell out a warning. But his re reflexes saved his life. You ever been to a teenager's funeral? It's kind of like when your grandfather dies, except your friend didn't have bushy white eyebrows and a cough from smoking for 60 years. And I remember crying in front of Dennis's closed casket and then feeling, rather than seeing, his mom kneel down next to me. She looked very old for a mom. At first, I thought she was his grandmother. Gray hair, gray skin, red eyes, all alone. She asked me if I had known Dennis well. I wanted to tell her about that night in the snow, but, but to say anything felt like a betrayal, a breach of trust, an admission of something I didn't yet have the words for, so all I said was, yeah, kinda. She looked into me, and when I didn't say anything more, she put her hand on my shoulder and got up to comfort someone else. I don't remember seeing anyone else from Dennis's family at his funeral. Not a father, or grandparents, or any brothers or sisters. Just his mom, all alone. I realize now what a gift it would have been for me to tell her about that time in the snow, that her son was a gentleman, that he didn't betray my secret, and that his kiss was my first. Now, 
I wish I had told her. Day blends into twilight. Dusk melts into black. We were fifteen, sixteen, maybe seventeen. The years have faded, and some are beyond memory. But I'll never forget what the wind, the snow, and the colored lights gave to Dennis and Louis and me that one Tuesday night so long ago. The last pure night of our childhood. And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now it's time to showcase Fish Out of Agua's Guest Artist of the Week. I've been lucky enough to be part of many different creative scenes here in New York City, going back to the 20th century, but today we're showcasing the present and storytelling. And this is not just one of my favorites. She also has some of the dopest hair I've ever seen. And trust me, I've seen a lot of dope hair. Well, anyway, and away we go. And we're here with Fish Out of Agua's guest artist interview for this week, Marie Faustin. Hi. Hi, Marie. You have to remind me how we met because you're one of the people that uh, are one of the newer cool humans in my life as opposed (laughs) to the old and tired. Oh, no, this girl is so young and fresh. Uh Uh-oh, now she knows how old I am because I said somebody was fresh. (laughs) (laughs) I gave it away. I love. She's funky fresh. I love throwback slang. She the bomb. She the shizzle. (laughs) Did you just raise the roof? Yeah. Woo! Uh, I think we met at, I want to say it was at um, Three of Cups. Oh, okay. Was it um, Harmon's Tale Show? I think it Harman was. Harmon Leon's Tale yeah, Show? Yeah, I think that's oh, what it okay. was. You told the story about like wintertime and like going to get pads or something from the store. Or your first kiss. I don't remember. Yes. It was like a bunch of things that I just remember seeing in my mind. Oh my God, that is so crazy. That is my favorite story I've ever heard you tell. That story is going to, I don't know if it's going to be in this episode or the next episode. It's called The Gift. It was about a tra- It was about uh, two people who I used to hang out with and one who I had this mad 15-year-old crush on. Yeah. Um, I got a kiss and a chaste, beautiful, like, playful friend so, kiss. It was such a beautiful story. And, yeah, and something not so nice happens. Yeah. Anyway, I don't want to give it away because it might be later this episode. But anyway, <laughs> oh, my God. See, that's so funny because I thought I had met you at a stand-up show because you're not just a storyteller. <clears throat> you're a producer and a radio person and a stand-up. And, um, well, let me just let you talk about how fabulous you are, girl. Uh, well, most of my stand-up is in story form. Mm. Like, I tell stories that have jokes in them. Yeah. So I just naturally kind of started doing storytelling shows because I didn't even know that was a thing. Wow. Yeah. I didn't even know it was a thing and people were asking me to do storytelling stuff and I was like, oh, I don't have to be funny. I tell the story the same exact way when I do stand-up. Right. It's just, it's different. Not necessarily better or worse, but... Usually better because people don't expect me to be funny when I'm telling a story. Yeah, that was the thing with me back in, in the day. Like, I was not good at set up punchline. Mm-hmm. But when I told a story, people would be cracking up because yeah. I, the characters were funny. I would be funny. I would yeah. say funny things. I'd make funny noises or whatever. Yeah. You know, and then when I discovered the moth, and it's a long time ago, it's going back like 12 years, you know, yeah. I was like, oh, this is for me. Finally, because I was having such a hard time finding a place to fit in. Because, you know, me with being the light-skinned Latina, nobody was casting me. Right. And I was like, you know, fuck this, man. I got to make my own way somehow. Yeah. it's I, I, I completely understand that because I lived in L.A. for two years. You did? Yeah, I was like, I'm going to try the stand-up comedy thing. We're going to see what happens. 
And when I got there, I was like, well, why did I leave New York? How like, long why? ago? I've been back in New York now for three years. And you're this a native, year. right? Yeah, born and raised. Yeah! Natives! <laughs> so I lived in L.A. for two years, almost. And when I was out there, I was trying to figure out how to break into the comedy scene there. But mm. the scene there is really different because everyone's trying to be alt. Yes. But oh, please. That alt was like when I started in 1996-97. That was like the alt comedy performance scene. Don't tell me they're still trying to be They're still trying that. to be alt, but like they're all trying to be different, but in, in their difference, they're all exactly the same. So I came to L.A. and I was actually different. And they were like, who is this? Like, what are you? It's not alt. Like, I was actually alt. You I was were alt, alt. alt. Yeah, you were alt, alt. Yeah, and they just, it, they didn't get it. And I was like, oh, I'm going back to New York. And when I got back here, I met... Cindy Washington, she's a comic based mm, here, mm-hmm. and we started a monthly show together called The Warm Up, which is an amazing show because we only put up people that we think are funny. Good. Like we don't, we don't like, we don't believe in like the politics of putting someone up because they have a show and they can put. We don't need to right. s- switch stage time. Right. Or like somebody put you in their show, therefore you must reciprocate. Yeah, oh no. no, no, I don't believe in that. Uh oh, she hasn't had me on it, so I don't know. <laughs> no, but I'm not a stand-up though, that's a stand-up show. Yeah, it's, it's different, it's, it's a different stand-up. animal. It's a different animal. Um, yes, but I'm, I've had you on the radio show. Oh, hell one yeah. The, one of the first people that I was like, I have to get her on. So I'm doing the show on the radio now. It's yes. uh, Tall Tales in the Big City. Tall Tales in the Big City. And it's a storytelling show that I just, I have my favorite comics and storytellers and just people mm-hmm. come in and tell stories about things that like someone listening to the show will listen and say, oh, that makes sense. That it's New York. Like only in New York. Yes. Like those are the stories that I want. And that's on WBAI on Thursday night? Yes. At seven, seven o'clock? Seven to eight p.m. Who are you going to have this week? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm really bad at booking it. Because I, uh, <laughs> All right, so if you're listening to this show... <laughs> I like to wait until a Wednesday night late, and then I'm like, hey, you got a story for me? <laughs> so it's kind of messy, but it's fun. They let me kind of do whatever I want. And we're trying to incorporate different types of stories, like stories from the Lower East Side, and stories about New York in the 80s, and stories from, like, children in the city, and stories from, like, you know, people that you don't necessarily hear from on mm. a regular basis on TV or on the radio. Right. That's good. Yeah. So what, what led you to becoming a stand-up? I mean, did you did you go to school for acting? I don't even no, know what... I went to school for public relations and journalism. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, so she comes from to this objectively. <laughs> I, come to, I come to this very broke and in all of the student debt. That <laughs> is possible. But I, uh, yeah, I went to school for that and I... Um, People have always told me that I was funny. Mm-hmm. My guidance counselor in high school used to pull me out of class, and they would lock the guidance office doors, and I would tell stories to the principal, the vice principal, all the secretaries, all the guidance counselors. Like, I didn't even realize that at that time I was performing stand-up. I just thought I was retelling them like a funny, exaggerated story about my weekend. What high school was this? Walt Whitman High School. Wow, where is that? That's on Long Island. Oh, it's on Long Island, okay. Yeah, so I, uh, yeah, I went to Whitman, and uh, my guidance counselor was always like, you should be a comedian. You're so funny. And I was like, I can't get no scholarship for this. Shut up, Ms. Bogan. But, like, I just put it out of my mind and went to school for something else. Mm. But every time I would go out or I would do something or I'd be at a party, people would say, you're so funny. You should be a comedian. And he was always like, but I'm smart, too. But they didn't. Yeah. 
Oh, so hard to be smart, isn't it? Uh, such a burden. I'm, I'm pretty. I could also be a model. Yeah, no, she no can. One. No, she <laughs> she was a model very recently. Didn't you do like hair for somebody on like some like fancy ass TV show? Yeah, I was on. Uh, oh, I was on the Wendy Williams show. Yeah, and then I was on. Um, Good Morning America. Yes, that's, yeah. Bobby yeah. Brown was doing my makeup. Yeah. And yeah. she didn't actually do my makeup. Her so, assistant did it. Just for the record, because this is a radio and you, can't, and you can't see it, Marie has, like, the most outrageous, amazing hair you will ever see on a human being. Like, it is, uh, like, it, it's, it's <laughs> like the sequoia, it's like the grand sequoia forest of hair. <laughs> it, it, it will endure for the next 2,000 years. Listen, listen. I've, I thank you. That's the nicest compliment I've had all day. Really? The sequoia well, of it's, hair. It's, it's early. <laughs> still got time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the redwood forest of hair, like something that's like eternal and beautiful and Ooh. cannot be replicated. I love that. I love good. You're so descriptive in your compliments, even. Well, I don't know. I'm a writer, so I guess. I guess. Well, see, that's the thing. I'm not a writer. Like, I don't write. I'm not funny on paper. I don't think. Mm. I think I'm funny conversationally. Mm. So I don't write my jokes out. I'll write like a like a subject, and then I'll be like, I'm gonna go from this hair thing to this homeless thing to this train situation and I don't write anything out I don't like anything that sounds too rehearsed mm. or memorized. yeah me either yes yes I, I, I hate that like when um, I would go to like readings with Fish Out of Agua most of the writers would just have their heads buried in the book and, and they tell me, and they would be like and then she said this and then I did that yeah. and, and meanwhile I would be like telling a story like I wouldn't even like the the told story would be different than the written story, right. just tweaked enough. Right. Because like you have um, like reading vocabulary, which is extensive if you're smart like us. <laughs> but you know your, your general speaking vocabulary is maybe like three thousand words. Right. You know your 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 reading vocabulary could be fifteen to twenty thousand words, but right. you're not going to be using all those words when you speak because then you're going to sound stilted. You're going to yeah. sound snobby. It, you're going to sound like not real. It doesn't sound real, and it doesn't yeah. sound like it's in the moment. And for me, as a comic, I feel like the things that I say that get the biggest laughs are the things that I I make up on stage. Yeah. So I can't make up the funny stuff while I'm writing it out. Yeah. Also, well, my memory is terrible. I can't remember. Everything. And she's young, girl. She <laughs> is young. She is Y-U-N-G. <laughs> you know, I make up stuff, too, but I make up Spanish. I make up words in Spanish. Yeah? Yeah, I do. Because, like, the, the Spanish doesn't keep up with, with English. Like, for example, there was a time when um, my brother and my cousins were being lazy in my grandmother's house, and I wanted to call them couch potatoes, but there is no word, so I called them papa de sofa. Yes. You know, potato <laughs> of the couch. And that, that, that like, started an international incident in my family, because, like, oh, you... You can't speak Spanish like that, blah, blah, blah. You have to really? say Bago and this. Oh, I have one auntie, please. I do meal. She is just like the the, the, critis, the critical one. And I was like, well, you know, it doesn't mean that. Bago, whatever, the other words, they don't mean couch potato. What so does like, Bago mean? A Bago is just like, like, a lazy... like slow, slug, or whatever. Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? It's not the nuance. Like, like I wanted to call somebody a Garaccio lady, so I called her a, a Garaccia. <laughs> that sounds right to me. I don't yeah. speak Spanish, but in my mind, yeah. it sounds right. Like, yeah. my mom and dad are from Haiti, mm. born and raised. So I'm first-generation Haitian-American. No. Hershey-American. Hershey? Yeah. Hershey's <laughs> Kiss-American. <laughs> but uh, growing up, my mom and dad speak French and Creole. Wow. So can you speak both? Right, yes. But as, like, so the first language I learned was Creole and then French. And then English. Wow. So in like at my house we speak all three languages. Trilingual. Right. So but in my house we speak all three languages in the same sentence. Oh so yeah, yeah, like, yeah. So it's like Spanglish. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Like it only is 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 cre creanchlish. 
crunch crunch cranklish cranklish crunch whatever it's not it's not english yeah so i went to school and i thought that's how everybody spoke like all three languages in a sentence so i would speak to them like that in school and they're like oh she's so dumb. let's hear it let's hear it let's hear it uh like parti à la toilette something like that je vais partir à la toilette oh but there was no english in there I know. As I was saying, I was like, there's no. Uh, I'm trying to think of something that I said to my mom today. Like, if I'm having a conversation with somebody that's in my family, it's I don't have to think about it. But I thinking about it now, I can't do it. Oh, okay, okay. Like, like, like in Spanish, you would be like, "Ay, mija," and then I told him, "I get cute," and then she said, "Entonces bueno," or something like that. Like that was just all made up, but it would be just like that. Uh, je ne sais pas where the food is at. Yeah, I don't know where the food is at. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so when I went to school, I was in ESL for, like, three or four years. Wow. Because they were like, she's she not really doing this English thing right. <laughs> <laughs> so what was it like for you when you first started doing stand-up? Were you, like, doing the stand-up thing right? Were you, like, no. You, you would be very different breaking in because most of stand-up is, I'm sorry, it's, like, boring white boys between the ages of 22 and 40 all talking about the same shit. And you're just, like this, and you're just like this amazing, fierce black girl, so, you know. And I'm going to say girl because you were probably were in your very early 20s then. And in fashion, we say girl. So don't yes, be insulted. Thank you. Girl is okay. fine. Thanks, okay. thanks, girl. Okay. Appreciate Good. you. G-G-U-R-L. <clears throat> no, I, uh, when I started, I was trying to be funny. It was really hard for me. Because mm. I, was, I was writing or performing what I thought people would think was funny. Oh. And everyone that you see is a white man. Right. And very sparingly, is there a black woman or a woman? Yeah, any so, woman. Yeah. So uh, I was trying to write what I thought they would understand and they would think was funny. But I'm like, I'm not writing for a white man. That's not who... I don't care about yeah. a white man. I care about, you know, people who look like me and people who, like, connect with me and mm-hmm. can understand what I'm saying, even if they don't look like me. You know what I mean? But they have like the same this the same point of view. Like one of my favorite one of um, my favorite stories of yours is when you're talking about like you, you're on a date that's not going well, but you want to get fed and you want your chicken, and I could totally relate to that. And like and like you, she's getting her chicken. I always want to get fed when I'm out. I go out on dates just for the food. I don't even like. <laughs> person that I'm sitting with. I just want food. <laughs> it's, it's comfort, man. Listen, just feed me. Yeah. But when I started, I was trying to write what I thought people would understand. And then it got to the point where I was like, no, because I never had to think about what I was saying when I was mm. in those guidance, that guidance office telling those stories. I was talking about my truth. And I was like, the audience that connects with me will find me. So I just started talking about what was important to me or what I thought was funny, which is Everything and nothing at the same time. And that's what's resonated because, like, you are just, like, this rising superstar. And, like, how did that lead to you being getting the WBAI gig? I worked as in, I was the assistant. Analog radio people. I was the assistant to the programming director there. Oh, okay. And I was a terrible assistant. Like, I showed up late. I didn't know how to, like, do nothing. I answered his phone, like, what you want? And it was, like, (laughs) sad. But he liked me because I was funny. Right. And so when I moved to L.A., he was also in L.A. because that's where he's from. And uh, when I moved back to New York, he was like, hey, a a slot just opened up, and I want to put some comedy there, and you're the funniest person that I know in real life. He was like, I want you to do a show here. And then that's how I got the show. That's amazing. FM radio in the number one media market. FM radio still existing. And we're doing, so you're, we're talking about your FM radio show on the internet radio. So once again, this has been Marie Faustin, who, when is your next warm up? 
Uh, it's the second Saturday of every month, so you just missed it. <gasps> but the next one will be February, I think it's the 11th. And this Thursday, she'll be on Tall Tales of the City at WBAI with a storyteller to be confirmed. Yes. So like her on Facebook, follow yeah. her on Twitter. Everything. On Instagram, I'm Reezy, R-E-E-E-Z-Y. Okay. And mm-hmm. then on Twitter, it's Miss Reezy, M-S. Cool. Reezy with three E's. And if you had something to say to maybe the 17 people who are listening to this show live, no, it'd be it's more than that. like 18. Yeah, maybe. probably 18 now because of you. All right, so <laughs> what, 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 would you, what would you tell the Fish Out of Agua um, audience? I would say just do you as best as you can do you. Because really, there's no one else like you, unless yes. you have a twin. Right. In which case. And, and, and even then, there's always a like good twin, bad twin. Of course. And we would be the bad twin. We'd be so <laughs> bad. All right, Marie, thank you so thank much. Thank you so much. We're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. In 1976, when the next story of Fish Out of Agua happens, the average cost of a new house was $43,400. Average income per year was $16,000, and average monthly rent, just 220 The cost of a gallon of gas was 59 cents, and that newfangled CB radio and microwave oven would set you back $147 and $169, respectively. Out in the world, beyond New York, Isabel Perón, the president of Argentina, was overthrown by a military coup. We saw the first commercial flight of the Concorde, the airplane that flew 1,350 miles an hour, faster than the speed of sound, creating sonic booms over every neighborhood it flew over. But it shortened travel between London and New York City to just three hours. In Soweto, South Africa, riots marked the beginning of the end of apartheid. And... Four foot ten, fourteen-year-old gymnastic powerhouse Nadia Comaneci wowed the world at the Montreal Olympics, receiving its first perfect ten scores. In the U.S., James Jimmy Carter, a peanut farmer who from a peanut farmer from Georgia who became its governor, was elected president in one of the biggest political upsets in history, until recent times. <clears throat> NASA unveiled the first space shuttle, the Enterprise, which, unlike its Star Trek namesake, never quite made it into space. And two computer geeks named Steve, as in Jobs and Wozniak, formed the Apple Computer Company, and the U.S. celebrated its bicentennial. I can only hope we make it to the next one. Popular movies in 1976 were Rocky, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, The Omen, and Taxi Driver. Some hit songs... Play that funky music, white boy, by Wild Cherry. Love Hangover by Diana Ross, and I won't sing that because otherwise you'll turn the radio off right now. Um, Close to You by The Carpenters, and one of my favorites, Blitzkrieg Bop by New York City punk rockers The Ramones from Forest Hills. Born this year of 1976, Ja Rule, Kerry Russell, Reese Witherspoon, and Matthew Shepard who was murdered in a landmark gay-related hate crime in Wyoming in 1998. Leaving us in 1976, eccentric billionaire inventor, billionaire Howard Hughes, mystery writer Agatha Christie, 1950s Red Scare blacklisted screenwriter Dalton Trumbo, and artist Man Ray. Yep, like the New York City portrayed in Taxi Driver, 
Someday, people are going to wonder how we who grew up back then survived at all. Like in this song, from Marvin Gaye in 1971. There's a lot of things making people want to holler these days, too. Looks like maybe change has become the new same.
Everybody thinks we're on the mother. Who are they to judge us? Mother, mother, simply call us sweet where I hang on. Trigger happy polices, panic is real, God knows where we're headed, yeah, it looks like change is the new same. And now, chapter 24 of Fish Out of Agua, Kill Whitey Day. I was standing in the basement of Macy's Park Chester in the Bronx in a line of what seemed like a thousand teenagers smoking both cigarettes and weed, chanting and cheering and waiting for Ticketron to open. Adult shoppers were non-existent, and the salespeople had abandoned their post either in foreknowledge or in fear, except for the lone Ticketron employee at the window, way beyond where I could see. All around me were kids I knew, but I acknowledged no one. I was on a mission. It was a little past 10 o'clock on a weekday morning, and you might be thinking that we all should have been in school. And yes, we should have been, and maybe some of us would have been, except for one thing. Led Zeppelin was coming to Madison Square Garden, and tickets were about to go on sale. Because in those primitive analog days before cable TV, cell phones, and the internet, you had to listen to your favorite FM radio station, for me, 95.5 WPLJ, day and night, non-stop, waiting for the DJ to announce the day and time concert tickets would go on sale. And then you went that day and you lined up at the nearest, at the nearest Ticketron and you waited. And if it was a weekday, fuck school. Who in their right mind would go to school when for $7.50 you could see Led Zeppelin play Cashmere? I didn't get a ticket that morning. Not because they'd sold out, but because I didn't have enough money. Even the blue nosebleed seats were now $5.50, a whole dollar more than the year before. And I wasn't the only kid who was disappointed. Some of them were so disappointed, they started tearing up the selling floor, tagging graffiti, throwing mannequins around, and cursing. And I was having none of it. I had spent an entire hour in the 43rd Precinct for graffiti writing and vandalism once, and I was not eager to repeat that experience. So, at 10.30, I peacefully left Macy's with my five crumpled $1 bills and walked back to school, figuring uh, that day wasn't a total loss, as I'd only missed three periods. I arrived at school a little past 11 and right away saw something was up. For one thing... There was a phalanx of cop cars around the Westchester Square train station. And for another, I heard the yelling from all the way up the hill. And then I remembered, today was Kill Whitey Day. I know that in some alternative universe, one's high school days were a halcyon, carefree time with fond, gauzy memories of homecoming days, pep rallies, and proms. But at my high school, 
fondly referred to in those days as Lehman State Prison, the pivotal events we had to look forward to each year were Kill Whitey Day and Kill Black and Puerto Rican Day. It's said that gangs are cyclical in New York City's. There were gangs in the 1950s. There are gangs today. But in the mid to late 1970s, teenage New York was a city divided and ruled from Parkchester out to Morris Park and up to Throg's Neck by the white gangs, the Bronx aliens, and Bronx ministers. Their black and Latino counterparts, the Savage Skulls, Savage Nomads, Mongol Brothers, and biker gang, the Chingalings, claimed everywhere south of the Bronxford Parkway and Soundview Avenue and west, past Yankee Stadium and Fordham Road, all the way to the Harlem River. And every year, every high school would have its couple of times a year when it would be at war. And as in any war, any unfortunate civilians who found themselves behind the front lines would just have to get by as best they could. And the messed up thing about it, was you knew exactly when it was all going to go down. The information crossed gang, race, and ethnic lines and flashed through your entire school faster than group text messaging locks down a campus today. You knew when your kill day was going to be. And not going to school that day was not an option because everyone would know that you had punked out and your own neighborhood, your own friends would make you a pariah for being a faggot and a pussy, for not having enough heart to risk getting a beatdown, along with everyone else. Lehman High School, being in a mostly Italian neighborhood, was Bronx Minister's territory. But by some fate of late 1960s decentralization, half of the student population was various ethnicities of white and the other, black and Latino, from the South Bronx neighborhoods my parents had succeeded in escaping ten years before. So, Lehman was a school doubly blessed, as it observed both kill days. This year, Kill Black and Puerto Rican Day had been the previous week, and luckily I had escaped unscathed. Not so the year before, when two Italian boys had held me down and stabbed me in the shoulder with an ice pick, not because they specifically hated me, as I later found out, but because a couple of savage skulls had whipped them with a car antenna. And since they weren't motivated, brave, or stupid enough to go down to the Bronx River Projects to extract revenge, the next best thing for them to do was, of course, attack 5'2", 108-pound me. They both actually apologized to me later and told me that I hoped I understood they hoped I understood it wasn't personal. As I mentioned earlier, I still have the scar. Well, since punking out wasn't an option, I had to go into school. I went around the back way where I knew, and securely, securely, security amazingly didn't, a door was always propped open. Fourth period was about to begin, and something told me... Mm, to try to sneak a cigarette before entering the relative safety of my health class. But I was nervous, so I took a chance. I peeked into the girls' bathroom, and seeing no one, ducked into the last stall and immediately assumed the smoker's position, crouching on the toilet seat so someone bending down to check the stalls wouldn't see my feet, 
and waving my right arm back and forth continuously so the curling smoke wouldn't give me away either. But after a few minutes, the Newport light just wasn't doing it for me. But then I decided there was still time for one more drag. Famous last words. I was about to flush the cigarette when the door opened and four black girls came in. I knew they were black because of their names. The quiches and tawandas of the next generation were in utero or just being born, but girls my age were the last of a generation who was still named after jewels and desirable attributes. Crystal, ruby, precious, and unity. Delicate flowers, who stashed razor blades in their afros and carried rolls of pennies balled up in their bandanas. I knew who they were because of their reputations. They were finely tuned, black pride lionesses who hunted their prey with particular savagery. What they caught, they would not release. And I knew that if they caught me, I was a goner. Because none of them would stop to ask a light-skinned, freckle-faced redhead where her family was from before they beat the living hell out of her. Dag, Ruby, you see that blonde bitch face when we knocked her tooth out? Yeah, but shoot, my hand cut up. Precious, watch the doll. Oh, shit, you smell something? Who in here? I had neglected to do the one thing that could have saved me, which was to douse the cigarette and keep still. And there wasn't a thing I could do except wait, as the stalls were opened one by one until they found me. It was pointless to fight back. Well, one, definitely. Two, Maybe, but there were four of them, and it would have been suicide to try to tell them they were making a mistake. The year before, an olive-skinned Irish girl named Ellen something or other had tried to front and say that she was half Puerto Rican, and she ended up being held down and raped with an umbrella. That was not going to happen to me. The girls pulled me off the toilet and threw me on the floor. I rolled up into a ball and tried to protect my face as they punched, kicked, and penny-rolled me. How long? Too long. And then the door opened. Yo, Nancy, we got us another white girl. You want some? I looked up through one swollen, tear, and afro-sheen-clouded eye and saw Nancy Jimenez walk in. Nancy, who really was half Puerto Rican and half Irish, was one of the anomalies in our little world, a blessed creature who moved seamlessly between the races, befriending everyone, beat up by none. She came over and looked down at me. Dag, man, that girl ain't white. She's Puerto Rican. What? She Puerto Rican. That shell. I know her from homeroom. She's from St. Peter's, but she's Puerto Rican. She just look white. The punches stopped. A razor blade whizzed by my left cheek and clattered onto the tiles. The one called Unity said, She's Puerto Rican? And prodded me with a pro kid. I axed you! You Puerto Rican? I spit out a trail of blood and snot and croaked out the only thing I could think of. See? See? See, I told you! Stupid! And Nancy, having secured her eternal place in heaven left the bathroom. Four pairs of eyes saw me as a person for the first time. Aw, oh, man, 
We sorry. Oh, man, we sorry. Shoot, why didn't she say something? Oh, come on, man. Why didn't you say nothing? Come on, help that girl up. That was Unity, their leader talking. Crystal, Ruby, and Precious picked me up off the floor, patted my hair down, and tried to rearrange my clothes. Get some water. Clean her up, Unity commanded. The girls ran to the sink, wet their bandanas, and daubed at my face. I took Ruby's pink bandana and walked to the mirror to clean myself. She didn't protest. Oh man, this ain't right, Unity said. We sorry. We didn't know. Oh man, why didn't you say nothing? Well, you're not going to tell, right? Oh man, this ain't right. No, no. Oh no, we got to make we got to make it up to you. All right. Uh, come on, girls. Give her your weed. Crystal, Precious, and Ruby all looked down at their sneakers. Unity yelled, I said, give her your weed. Give it up. One by one, the girls reached into their afros and their tube socks and pulled out crooked joints rolled in banana, chocolate, and strawberry easy widers. Mutely, with averted eyes, they handed them to me. We sorry, Crystal mumbled. Yeah, man, we sorry, Ruby said. But Precious didn't reach for anything. She'd been standing on the other side of the bathroom and was now trying to sidle her way towards the door. But she couldn't get away from Unity's watchful eye. Unity's fist shot out biff and punched the side of Precious's head so hard her afro pick flew into the sink, clattering in front of me. I said, give her your weed, bitch. Give it up. Precious's hand trembled as she dug around her bra and finally handed me a crumpled, Sweat-stained, half-full, nickel bag. Ah, look, we sorry, man. It was a mistake, right? Unity said. You're not going to tell, right? I mean, like, yo, we just did you a solid and all. All right, come on, girls. Let's go kick some real white ass. And just like that, they left. And I stood there in the bathroom for a moment, totally accepting what had just happened as just the way things were. I didn't know whether I wanted to run after them or run and hide, but then I still couldn't believe my luck in escaping with only a slightly cut lip and a soon-to-be black eye. And when I looked at what was balled up into my clenched fist, I knew exactly what I had to do. I walked right out of school and over to Zapper's Corner, where I sold all the weed and then ran back to Macy's, getting there just before Ticketmaster closed at 4 p.m. Yeah, the day wasn't a total waste after all. I was going to see Led Zeppelin play Kashmir. And that's our show. This has been Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. If you like what you're hearing, please consider sponsoring us. You can do it for as little as a dollar per episode. Hey, that's left in your yearly taxpayer share for funding PBS, federal art programs, museums, colleges, and libraries. Those figures were taken from a report in time about how some of the federal agencies President number 45 has threatened and how much they cost the average taxpayer. No alternative facts here. To sponsor this show, go to the Fish Out of Agua page on RadioFreeBrooklyn.com Click on the green Sponsor This Show button and let Patreon take care of the rest. Stay tuned for Brooklyn Bandstand next and we'll leave you with a little Led Zeppelin from Physical Graffiti and the song I Got to See Live at Madison Square Garden. Oh, let's-
See you next week.
traits Like sorts inside a dream 